When you look at your life, what do you see? Success? A good person? Something very ordinary, perhaps? Or maybe more? Christ's offer, in contrast, is something different, something opposite, yet something entirely better, something extraordinary. And while it's not far off, we won't find it where we typically go looking. No, we won't find it there at all. Welcome, everybody, to the weekend. We're going to be talking about extraordinary love. And right before we jump into that, I want to tell you about a book that I just recently wrote, and it's finally ready to be released. The name of the book is Reset, Live Every Day Like It's a New Day. And that book is all about the extraordinary love of God. And I use my own personal journey to tell you how I came to understand that love and experience it. You see, I went through a gauntlet of abuse as a child, and then later on I was diagnosed with OCD and have had that challenge my whole life. And uh, I went through a, a really dark period of really wondering if God loved me. And uh, what I do is I take you through Scripture, I take you through some uh, good psychology in understanding how our minds work and how if we get our minds to work the right way, God's way, we begin to realize his extraordinary love. And not only do we experience that extraordinary love, we're able to show it toward others. So if you've ever wrestled with loving yourself or loving others or really believing that God loves you, I really want to encourage you to pick up the book. It's $10. The profits go all toward our church planting initiative overseas. And so if you read that book, and by the way, if you go to the website, dalehummel.com, that's where you can order it. We'll ship it to you, or you can pick it up at the Eden Prairie campus. But if you like the book, you think it's valuable, then I would just encourage you to tell other people about it, whether you do it through social media or word of mouth, because I want this to be an a experience of inner healing in people's hearts and lives. And then on October 2nd, here at the Eden Prairie campus, right after the service, the second service at 1145 in our chapel area, I'm actually going to give a little talk about the book and then answer any questions people might have. So if you want, you can go ahead and order the book, come pick it up, or we'll get it to you. And I pray and trust it'll be a blessing in your life as you take the journey with me and experience God's extraordinary love in your life as well. Now, this is the third weekend in our series, The Extraordinary Life, How to Live an Extraordinary Life. In the first weekend, we talked about having extraordinary ambition. In the second weekend, we talked about the importance of an extraordinary mission. Pastor Kyle taught us well about living for others rather than living for ourselves. And that brings us to talk about extraordinary love because none of that is possible if we don't believe and understand the love that God has for us. And that reminds me of one of my favorite characters in the old Winnie the Pooh story, maybe your familiar with that story, most people are, and that is that gray little old donkey named Eeyore. And in one of the stories, Eeyore is by this stream, and he's looking at his reflection in the water, 
And he says, as only Eeyore can say, pathetic. That's what it is. Pathetic. And then he walks down the stream a little ways and he splashes across and he comes up on the other side and he's looking again at his reflection and he says out loud, he says, yep, just as I thought, same on this side, pathetic. And all of a sudden there is a rustling in the, in the bracken behind him and out comes Winnie the Pooh. And Winnie the Pooh says to him, good morning, Eeyore. And Eeyore responds and says, good morning, Pooh Bear. If it is good morning, and I kind of doubt that it is. And Pooh Bear looks at him and says, well, you know, what, what's, what's the matter? And he responds, Eeyore says, nothing. No, really, nothing at all. You know, we all can't and some of us don't. And Pooh Bear rubs his nose and he says, we all can't what? And Eeyore says to him, he says, you know, gaiety, song and dance. Here we go around the mulberry bush. That's just the way it is. Do you know anybody like Eeyore? I mean, they look at life, they look at themselves, and they just think and, and say, I'm pathetic. I am worthless. I'm hopeless. Other people are pathetic and hopeless and worthless. I mean, they just see the glass half empty. They don't have any sense that God loves them or cares about them. Maybe it's what they've been through in life that brings them to that point. But do you know somebody like that? Is it possible that that somebody might be you? All of us, from time to time, struggle to feel loved, to know that we are loved, to know that we matter. And here's what I want to say to you. And this is kind of the big idea that I hope you'll embrace. Simply this, that, you know, you cannot love extraordinarily if you don't believe you're extraordinarily loved. You cannot love extraordinarily unless you believe with all your heart that you're extraordinarily loved. And that's the plight of our culture these days. And the plight of our culture is people are searching for love. Unfortunately, they're all searching in the wrong places. And as a result of that, there's a lot of hurt that's taking place. You know, one of the places that people should search for love and actually be able to find it, it's in the church. But if truth be told, let's be honest with each other, oftentimes the church what we end up experiencing is more hurt than love, more pain than peace and joy and hope. And I think that's because of a couple of different reasons. I think one of the reasons why we don't find love in the body of Christ, like we should find love in the body of Christ, is you know, some of us have become rather abusive in our spiritual relationship with each other. You know, we read about it and it's tragic and it makes me sad when I hear about pastors or spiritual leaders who use their position or their influence to manipulate people physically or emotionally or spiritually. And if that's happened to you, I'm sorry for that. And uh, if 
I am guilty of it or you're guilty of it. We should seek forgiveness. Sometimes it comes out unintentionally, but more often than not, it's intentional. And we're not reflecting the love of God like we're supposed to. In other situations, what happens is we take God's word, and I got my really big Bible here, and in essence, we use God's word like a hammer. And we just, we use it to to shame people, to guilt people, to tell people what's wrong with them, to show them what's wrong with them, to correct them, to manipulate them. And when you just present the truth like that, and there's no love involved, that's abusive. That hurts. That doesn't help. And the opposite is also true. You know, sometimes what we do is we, we kind of hide the Word of God, right? And rather than speaking the truth, we think that all I have to do is just be nice and loving And people will figure it all out, but I really don't want to ever tell anybody that they're wrong. I don't want to point out anything in their life that that might be an error. God will do that if he wants. I just want everybody to know how loved they are and how accepted they are. And that's abusive too. I mean, imagine a parent who never teaches their kid right from wrong and just just decides, I'm just going to love my kid no matter what they do, no matter how they act. I'm never going to discipline them. I'm never going to point out what's wrong. You would end up with a situation worse than if you used the Word of God as a hammer because they're going to get hurt in so many ways and they're going to become hurtful people. The Bible teaches us that we are supposed to speak the truth in love that we are supposed to love and speak the truth. In fact, if you look at the model and the example of Jesus in the scriptures, he led with love, which opened the door for him to speak the truth. And he was never afraid to confront people with the truth. And even those who rejected him because they didn't like the truth he was sharing, he still loved them. Though it grieved his heart to watch them walk away in rebellion. If people are going to learn to love extraordinarily, they've got to be loved extraordinarily. And they've got to experience that love of Christ from you and from me. But you see the problem? How are they going to experience that from us if we aren't aware and confident of how much God loves us? And that brings us to our text in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to follow along. I'm not going to put the text up this weekend because it's a longer passage of scripture. But Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he loves this church. And he's, he's like a, a mother hen. He's trying to protect this church. And he realized that there are some very spiritually abusive people who have come to that church and causing some problems. And, you know, Paul realizes that at one time he himself was very spiritually abusive Remember, before Jesus ambushed Paul on his way to Damascus, Paul himself was a, was, a, was a Pharisee. In fact, he was like the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was like the poster child of Pharisaism. And he taught and believed that you had to earn God's love. That God's love was not unconditional. God's love was not filled with grace and free for everyone. You earn God's love by how good you were, how self-righteous you were. You earn God's love by keeping the traditions. And if you were a male, you earn God's love by being circumcised. And Paul was so strong in his belief about that that he would persecute Christians who were teaching about grace and how Jesus was 
the one who saves us and not our works. In fact, he, he consented to Stephen being murdered. He was on his way to Damascus when Jesus ambushed him. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and had them imprisoned and to have them killed. But Jesus changed his life. And after Paul converted to Christ, Paul, Paul became obsessed with telling people how much God loves them, how we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn grace. It is because of what Christ has done for us, freely, genuinely, unconditionally, that we repent of our sins and, and turn to him. And so I want you to listen to what Paul is saying to that little church in light of some of the issues that they were starting to wrestle with as people were kind of visiting and coming along and saying to them, wait, 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 it's not by grace. You've got to earn your salvation. Let me start to read here in Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put on confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider it loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. When I was a, a young boy and had just started in the public school system of our country, uh, it was fifth grade, and I was attending uh, Mina J Elementary School. And after school, there were two ways that I could go home. One, one way was kind of the back way, and it was the, it was the quicker way but it was a dangerous way. It was dangerous because uh, it kind of wove in and out of some rough neighborhoods. And there was this kid there by the name of Freddie Berg, and he was kind of like a troll. I mean, like he was the meanest kid east of the Bad River. And when he wasn't in juvenile detention, he was kind of out walking around, and, and he was older than the rest of us. And if he saw you, he'd He'd catch you, and then he'd kind of threaten you and shake you up to get everything out of your pockets, money, candy, whatever it is, and then threaten you if you told anybody what he had done. 
The other way to come home was a little further, and it took you out to Main Street down Bell Avenue on a really nice sidewalk in front of some of the more respectable homes in town. But there was a problem on that road home. And the problem was there was a Doberman pincer that lived in one of the houses that always seemed to know when I was choosing to come home that way. And sometimes he would convince the master of the house, who is this uh, rather, uh, oh, how should I put it, mean-looking lady, I'll just be honest with you, that it was time for him to go out and do business, and the business was me. So she let him out, and just as I thought I got past that house, he'd come out, you know, his, his fangs showing, his, his growling, his barking, foaming at the mouth at me, and I would just freeze and I would just scream at the top of my lungs. And sure enough, she'd open the door and she'd yell at the dog and tell him to stop barking and come back. And then she'd yell at me and she'd say, I have told you he doesn't bite. But that didn't convince me. It was traumatic. I'd swallow my heart and then, you know, maneuver my way and find my way finally to our house trailer where we lived uh, there in town. Paul says to the Philippians, don't let those evil, barking, mutilating dogs get to you. Don't let those spiritual bullies rough you up with their inferences that you have to somehow be circumcised if you're a male or keep the law and all the traditions in order to be loved by God. He says, he says it's just rubbish. Acts chapter 15 we're told about these kinds of people that were spreading this, these lies in the church. It says in Acts 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is like a critical moment for the church. Because if what we're saying to to believers is that, yes, you need to accept Christ, but you must also keep the law. You must also be circumcised if you're a male. Then it's a huge burden. Can you imagine if the early church required all males to be circumcised? The early church would have been mostly all women. And Paul says that kind of teaching, that kind of idea, he says, you know what it is? He says, it is, he uses this Greek term, skibala. He says, it is Skibala. Now, what does he mean by that? And we read it earlier. Well, most modern translations are, are just afraid to translate this literally as it really is. But I, I think it's necessary for us to understand this. Several years ago, um, I had the opportunity to go to Philippi, where uh, Paul had been. And uh, it was an amazing experience. It brought the book of Philippians to life to me. It brought Acts chapter 16 to life to me. And uh, the head archaeologist there showed me some favor that allowed me to go beyond the tourist lines. And there wasn't hardly anybody there anyway. So I actually just managed this. I got to walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. I, I got to be in proximity to where he spoke and then baptized uh, uh, Lydia and her and her uh, household. Remember, she was a seller of purple from Thyatira. I got to see probably 
very close to where Paul confronted these men who had this girl, and, and this girl could, was like a fortune teller, and, and uh, she kept saying things about the Apostle Paul until finally Paul just stopped and rebuked the devil out of her and set her free. And that caused a little bit of a riot in town because they lost their business. And I got to actually go to one of the posts where Paul may have been strapped along with Silas and then had his back beaten. I got to actually go and see the prison where Paul and Silas would have been because they have uncovered uh, a bank of little, they're just little square like stalls that were used as prisons in those days. And then the guide who had to be with us uh, said, you ought to now go and look at, the, look at the local latrines, the local commodes, the local bathrooms. We've unearthed the bathrooms that the people used in those days. And sure enough, there they were. I mean, carved out of stone, just like you would have at home, the toilet seat. And I thought to myself, I have not come all this distance, spent all this money and done all my study so I can say to people, I sat where Paul sat wasn't going to do that until, until I realized that word skibala. And I realized from the passage of Scripture that this word skibala literally means, say it, see, you said it, not me. It literally means poop, all right? And I'm saying it in a nice way. Paul is saying, you know what, when these dogs show up, and by the way, Paul, in essence, says, I used to be the big dog. What they're saying and what I used to say, he goes, in comparison to what the truth is, what grace is all about, it's just a bunch of, it's just a bunch of dung. It's just a bunch of dung. Remember this passage? We read it earlier. He says, I considered them, this is Kabbalah, dung, poop, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. In essence, what Paul is saying, any idea you have in your mind, any thought you have in your mind, that somehow you can earn the, right, the love of God through your own efforts, he says, take it and do this with it. Listen. That's right, flush it. Everybody listening to me probably has a toilet in their house. You probably never thought there was a spiritual application to your toilet. But the next time you think that somehow you've got to earn God's love, that somehow God won't love you if you're not good enough, I want you to take that thought, go to your toilet, and just stick it in there with your imagination and flush it. And let it go. Now here's the problem, okay? As followers of Christ, we sing about amazing grace. We talk about God's love for us. And, and yet we still struggle to let that truth overcome us. Our default, our default is to believe that, that somehow I've got, to, I've got to still earn God's love. It's, it's like a shadow on the wall that follows us. It's like a, a voice in the back of our mind. We just keep thinking that there's something I have to do in order to be loved by God. And that's because that's kind of how we behave with each other. I mean, you know, for you ladies out there who are married, the last time your husband brought home flowers to you, what went through your mind, huh? I, I'm guessing what may have gone through your mind is, okay, what does he want? 
or what did he do? <laughs> or the, you know, when your kids, when they, uh, when they make their bed and fold their laundry for you and clean their room and help make dinner. I mean, when they are just like going all out, what does it cause you as a parent to do? You wonder to yourself, what did they do? What do they want, right? Because that's how we do things. It's just our default nature. We feel like we have to, you know, earn love, buy love, uh, be worthy enough to have love, do enough good things that someone will love us. And you know, that's caused by a couple things. One, it's caused by, it's caused by pride. You know, in our, in our sinful nature, our pride is at work. And you know, some of us, we look in the stream, remember ER, we look in the stream and we see our reflection and we think to ourselves, you know something, you're not that bad. Compared to the people I work with, you're pretty good. Compared to uh, what I see on the news, you're pretty good. Compared to my, you know, my in-laws, you're pretty good. And we evaluate our worth and our value by how we compare to those who are around us. I'll give an example of this. Um, I was reading about Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world. And uh, this, this was several years ago when he was worth about $44 billion. I'm sure with the market the way it is, that's gone down a ways. But at that time, he was worth $44 billion, and he made this statement. He said, I'm going to give away 85% of my wealth. And then he made this statement. He said, you know, there are a lot of different ways to get to heaven. <laughs> I think this is a great way. You hear what Buffett is saying? He's saying, you know, I deserve God's love. I deserve to get into heaven because I'm really rich. And look, I'm going to give a whole bunch of it away. So certainly God's going to smile and, you know, give me the wink and say, you're in, Warren, because look how generous you are. And sometimes that's how we, that's how we approach God. If I go to church enough, if I read the Bible enough, if I serve enough, volunteer enough, do enough things, if I avoid and I don't do certain things and I do do certain things, that, that I will qualify for heaven. And do you know what God says we ought to do with that? We ought to take it and remember that sound? We ought to what? We ought to flush it and let it go. It is skibala to God. The Bible says that in his sight, our righteousness is as filthy rags. But then, you know, there are some of us that, that we do it a different way. We're like, we really are like Eeyore, okay? And we look in the water and we see our reflection and we know what sinners we are. We know how bad that we have been. And we just, you know, we just go, I, I just, I'm not good enough for God. And it's a weird form of pride, it, it almost becomes like a context. Like somebody will tell you, oh, I'm just, I am such a sinner. And you go, what do you mean by that? And they'll tell you. And then, you know, then they'll, they'll say, oh, that's nothing compared to what I've done. And you're, you'll get in heaven. You're not bad like me. It's like we're bragging now about how sinful we are. And you know what? The Bible tells us to do that kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that says, I'm just not good enough for God. People told me I'm not. I've done some horrible, bad things. God says we ought to take it. And guess what? We ought to pull the handle and what? We need to flush it, right? We need to let it go. We need to let it drain and let it empty and be freed of that. 
You say, Pastor Joe, how do you get to that place where, where you can just truly live and be so confident in God's extraordinary love that, that you're not trying to earn it and you're, and you're not feeling like you, you can never attain it? And the answer is given in the very first words that Paul spoke to us. Back to Philippians chapter 3. Here it is. It's so simple. It's almost embarrassing. He says, finally, my brothers, okay, here's the word, rejoice in the Lord. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, we need to rejoice. We need to rejoice in who Jesus is in what he has done for us, in who he has made us, in who we belong to. We need to rejoice to the point that it overcomes us, like literally knocks us off our feet as we think about what God has done for us. And we don't, we don't deserve it and we can't earn it. But because of Christ, it's been given to us. It reminds me of what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. He said, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. In, in essence, what Paul is saying is this. Look, he says, what really needs to be circumcised is your heart. But Christ allowed his heart to be given for you. And God took the life of his son in place of your life. Jesus paid the penalty of sin by giving up his life and making an atonement, a sacrifice for you and me. And so God accepts what Jesus has done for us, totally accepts it, and just turns right around and says, look, we can be reconciled now. You can be absolutely forgiven. When you put your faith in my son, I treat you like you are my son because you become my son. And everything that he has is now yours, and who he is is now who you are to me and you can't earn it, and you don't deserve it, and you can't lose it. So stop letting this idea that you're not good enough get in the way. Stop letting this idea that somehow you have to earn it get in the way. You know what the, the real test of knowing if a person has really come to terms with being extraordinarily loved by God? Do you know what it is? Your ability, my ability to love others without them ever having to earn it. Without them ever having to feel like they deserve it by what they've done. 
by them knowing that no matter what they have done, we still love them. Boy, that's challenging, isn't it? It is hard to love people that way. But Jesus says, if you can't love your enemies, then your love is no different than anybody else. We once were God's enemy, but God showed his love for us when he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. So in essence, what I think God is saying is, look, those of you who struggle, those of us who struggle with our pride and, and think that somehow we, you know, we just have to be good enough and God will accept us, in essence, what he's saying to us is, hey, you know what? You need to come and you need to kneel here at this cross. Get your eyes off yourself in the stream and get your eyes on Christ and who he is and what he did for you and for me. And let that humble us, remind us, I can't earn it. It's just given to me. It's just poured out on me. Like every day in our lives, we need to have that moment at the cross, preferably when we start our day, where we just let God wash over us and overwhelm us with his love. Knock us off our feet. And then for those of us who are like my friend Eeyore, and we just think about ourselves, and the only word that comes to our mind is pathetic. <laughs> or people have looked at us and said, pathetic. You know what we need to do? We need to take all that shame and all that guilt and all those feelings, and you know what? Let's stop looking at ourselves and our shortcomings. We Eeyores need to kneel at the cross. We Eeyores need to see Jesus and not our shortcomings and not our faults and not our past and not our pain and not our hurts. We need to see a Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, knowing even while we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. Remember, in Philippians chapter 4, we're told about two godly women, Yodia and Sintiki, who were in a conflict with each other. I think what Paul's trying to say is, you know what? As believers, if we're going to exemplify the love of God to the world, we can't be contentious with each other. We need to exemplify that love by looking past each other's faults and shortcomings and choosing to show grace instead. Now, I know that there's some who are listening to me right now, they're thinking to themselves, Pastor, I'm struggling with this message because it almost sounds like what you're saying is that grace, that grace is, is greater than our sins. There's a song that goes like that. And the truth is, grace is greater than our sins. It's greater than your sins. And then the thought that's going through your mind is, well, then aren't you sending a message to people that they can go ahead and sin? And I love what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. He says, no, may it never be. We don't sin so that we'll have more grace. He says, because we have so much grace, it causes us to want to stop sinning. And that's what I mean when I say, 
You cannot separate the word of God from the love of God because the word of God is a manifestation of the love of God. And God loves you with an extraordinary love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for going to such an end that you gave up your son that we might have eternal life. Lord, I pray for the one who's listening online or at our campus or our venue and has been feeling like they have to earn it and has been measuring themselves, comparing themselves to others to, to feel like, yes, I'm, I'm worthy. I deserve to be loved by God. Lord, set them free from that. Help them to be able to just let that go and stop comparing and stop competing. Let's help them to be overwhelmed by your love. To rest in that. And God, I pray for that one who may be watching or listening. And Father, they just feel, they just feel so unloved and they feel as though they can never be loved. Either because of what's been done to them or said to them or what they've actually done. God, help them to know nothing can separate them from your love except their choice not to let you love them. Help us, Lord, to struggle like Eeyore to look past ourselves and see your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll see you next weekend.